With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. As season 12 has worked its way to a close, we've reached the season finale. I personally hate the term finale because we're never truly done. So this is your Friday follow-up for season 12, episode 65, You'll Never Be Alone Again. This week, we wrapped up our journey in Pinion Pines, and we are a fly on the wall for Bob's conversation with Robert's sister, Christy Pape Somerville. Today, I'm joined by Bob and Janet, and we're here to talk about our thoughts as well as yours. How are you guys doing? Good. It's uh, we were just discussing on the the YouTube stream that it's uh, we're a little out of sorts. There's a whole. This happens to be the week where there's a lot of big changes. You know, we're wrapping as as you guys know that um, we were Sans uh, Kelly and Shane moving forward from this point at least for at least for the time being. Uh, it was a weird weekend with a holiday being on a Tuesday. Kind of kind of like got a stutter step to the start to the week that uh, has now Wednesday feels like Monday kind of. Um, but yeah, so uh, I wonder what you guys thought about the episode. I mean, it was a weird. It, let me first tell you this: it felt to me. I was, as I mentioned, was, I was really struggling with how do I end this? How do I end the season in a way that feels like it's okay for us to to at least pause the the investigative work or the investigation on the podcast here now? And uh, Christy was amazing, and that was it, it. Really felt like a great way to do that. I cried during the interview. I cried during the edit. I cried again re-listening to it when it came out. It was, this has been a rough emotional season for me. So what did you guys think? I loved hearing it. I loved hearing the emotion out of Christy. You know, you could see both ends. You could see the happy side. You could see the sad side. And it was, it was a great way to kind of put a button on everything to hear from her and to feel the emotions. And there, there's a lot of things that she talked about that I'll bring up in a minute, but I'll let Janet answer. But there's a lot of things that she talked about in the, the interview that i thought were really interesting that i didn't know so it's a it was a neat little thing yeah i i loved it i was so excited when you told us that you were going to have christy on as the finale i completely agree zach i think that was so well spoken that finale is not necessarily a word that feels celebratory you were Mm -hmm. used to finale feeling like it's something celebratory and this is not that um and so for lack of a better word yes we're sort of hitting pause on what goes out to the public. Mm -hmm. But I've had the extreme honor of spending a fair amount of time with Christy. Um, She was a big part of our weekend in Palm Springs. Um, I have spoken with her many times since. And and I think she's such a terrific representative of the families and um, is is just so well-spoken and you know, it was really great to have that human voice. Uh, I appreciated the statement that um, 
that Robert and Christian put together, but I think they, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't spoken to them about it, but I think the pressure of feeling like you you want to make a statement that says yeah. everything but doesn't say anything because you're not supposed to be saying anything, um, that's a lot to have to load into a statement that gets read aloud. And so I think having that that true heart of Christy representing the families was so important, and I thought she just did it beautifully. Well, and as you say that, it's nice to have it humanized, right? Because the letter from Robert and Christian was was great to hear from them, but it was, you know, it was definitely put through a filter, as you said, Janet. Where listening to Christy really kind of humanized this conversation. It was really nice to hear. The big thing for me, and I and I hope this came through, was that for those of you that are have been working so hard on this case, I wanted you to know and understand how appreciated you are, not only by me, but by, by these families, you know, cause we don't hear from them much. You don't realize that every little thing you're doing means so much to them. So I was glad that that came through. And of course, and it was, you know, there was no prompting to Christy. I just brought her on. Cause I, I just, I know how they all feel. I talked to them sometimes and I wanted you guys to hear yeah. that and know how much you all mean to them. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And shout out to B, um, Pape too, who I've gotten the opportunity to get to know and, and just think the absolute world of and, um, they're very inspiring, and and this is it's a, those two and Kathleen and just everybody. They're such a great reminder and such a great example. It's true. It truly is. You can have a moment where you feel like this isn't enough, or it's not doing enough, or you know someone's trolling and people are being mean on the internet and all that kind of stuff. And then you touch base with a family member, and all of that disappears, and your your heart is just full. And yeah. um, it's. It's so it goes both ways. Yeah. It goes and, both ways. And Kathleen is actually in the chat right now and she just she just commented, uh, good morning to the entire team of heroes. Thank you. Thank you for all of your hard work. No one has done such an in-depth investigation and we appreciate you. Team Rescue Robert and Christian. That yeah. is from Robert's mother. And just to take a moment too to acknowledge John Hayward and Vicky Friedley and Becky Friedley. Mm -hmm. No one is forgetting them in this. This is absolutely about them. Um, I hadn't thought to say this, but I just wanted to quickly say, um, you know, Rebe Rebecca Lavoie recently said on her podcast, Crime Writers On, I can't remember if it was their after show or if it was on the episode itself, but someone was t was talking about um, being upset and angry when people refer to the case of Adnan Syed and people say, no, this is this is the Heyman Lee case. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree. And so does Rebecca and so does Rabia. What she said was, and I'm probably not going to say this perfectly, is in a way, it's two cases, right? Yeah. There's the case of a, of a murder, and in this case, of a triple homicide that was unimaginable. And there's the case of two people being wrongfully convicted. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, they both have to be addressed. So when we say that this is Robert and Christian, we're not just saying they're the ones that matter. Yeah. But there is a case to what they're experiencing in addition to the case of this homicide. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's important to, to point out, at least from my perspective, a big part of me investigating these wrongful conviction cases is because as long as Robert and Christian are sitting in prison for this crime, the actual people who killed Becky, John, and Vicky have not paid for this crime and are still walking free and and there has been no real justice. So the two are intertwined so much because a big part of 
rescuing Robert and Christian, as Kathleen put it, is finding the people that actually did this, which is justice for Becky, John, and Vicky. To lighten it up for a second, it was fun to hear about them playing D and D and knitting. Like, yeah, that was that was such a like a lighthearted point in the in the episode. And it was so fun to hear. Yeah, and then as I told you, I mean, I talked to you about this yesterday, but the whole idea of like the the family like the family visitation where they get to spend the weekend with them. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I didn't realize that they even did that anywhere. The only time I've ever been around this is with the Michigan prison system where it's, it's very formal. You sit in a room mm-hmm. full of people, you sit next to your person and that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. So, so the idea that they get this whole room and this whole almost apartment for them to be together is, is really neat. Yeah. I've said, for, I, I found out about that when I first, you know, met the family and stuff. And that was one of the, and actually Christy and I had, you know, our conversation was much longer than what you heard because um, we had kind of an in-depth conversation about that. But it just just for time had to cut it. I'd cut it out of the out of the episode. But yeah, when I at first met the family and they were telling about these visits, I thought, well, you know, I've worked in Texas for so long. And it's like, my goodness, how they actually treat the inmates, at least as in a way like humans and give them the opportunity because it's, you know, that isolation away from everybody in the family and no sense of normalcy. You know, if, if the, if the goal of prison is supposed to be rehabilitation, then, you know, things like that are, are important. And, uh, yeah, so, so I'm at least happy that they have that, that they have those opportunities to have those family days or family weekends and, um, that they're able to do. But yeah, I, I the same way. I didn't even know that was a real thing until yeah this case. Yeah. That was the, the first I'd heard about it too, was, was talking to the, the family. Um, and, but what an exercise in staying in the moment too you know it's got to be so bittersweet because mm-hmm. the temp the temptation of of your vulnerable heart is to be projecting ahead the whole time to the fact that the, that it has to end um yeah. and so i think what an exercise in in just being like i need to be in this moment um enjoying every second of it and not dwell on the fact that it's not going to last you know yeah and i i want to say now and this is something i just didn't have time to um put together be- before now um but keep your eyes open on the fan page and our main so- socials. Uh, many, and I mean many, many, many people have either posted or messaged or emailed asking if there's a way that they can donate to help the family with offset their travel expenses to see the boys and things like that. Um, and I would like to set something like that up. So if either a listener wants to maybe set up a GoFundMe to do that, or I can s- set something up, I know, and I, I could before they even type, I'm sure that the family um, will say that's not necessary. They've never asked for anything, and I know they will, they've they've never asked for anything from us. But I do want you, those of you that are listening in the chat, to understand that this is something that people want to do. We've had again, you know, dozens and dozens of people that have reached out saying that we want to do something, and we want to if we can. If we can take away some of that burden and and make it so that they can afford to fly up to see them instead of driving them or to help with a rental car or to help for the gas and things like that. Um, or legal fees. I mean. Yeah. And then people said, you know, whatever they don't use, they can use for legal fees and stuff for for the Papes and the Smiths, um, uh, for Robert and Christian's family. Um, so I just I want to make sure that we make that something that is available for people that do want to do that. So that's something that will in, in this next week, we'll get that going for so if you're one of those people. We'll get it together. And if you're and if you want to organize that, then just let me know and we'll set that up. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, uh, should we get into some questions? Yeah, let's do it. Well, first, um, we've sort of said this already, but uh, so many folks uh, in the follow up on Facebook who are just so and I see in the YouTube chat as well, who are just incredibly grateful to hear that family perspective, to hear Christy, a lot of sympathy for the families uh, um, and just general real appreciation Mm -hmm. that this was something that you were able to share um, as our last for now episode. Um, Unsurprisingly, there are also lingering questions Following the lingering questions episode, there are still uh-huh. lingering questions. You have them too, Bob. I know, Zach, you do as well. So um, many of those kind of floated up on the follow-up post for this episode as well. Lingering questions about pension money and, you know, the people in the neighborhood and how this crime came about and all of that. Um, some of those we'll get into with specifics. But some I just wanted to acknowledge and give shout outs to folks like uh, Kristen and Mary Ellen and Lori and Jason and Dave who were, you know, asking about those. The, again, the work is not unfinished, um, but it's not something that is in a position that we can talk about at this point. Yeah. And one thing that I had said that I was going to do in the the final episode that I didn't put, it just didn't make sense to fit it in there and it wasn't enough was some people were asking about. I'd said that I want to kind of give a full breakdown of the pension situation with Ron. Um, and I kind of forgot about it until we sat sat down in here, but but I'll, just to give you kind of a brief understanding. So there's there are listeners who have gone through and like pulled like court rec- court records from like the filings for the divorce and things like that. And um and I, I don't want to give specifics right now off the top of my head because they could be wrong. So I will um make sure in the follow up next week to re- to give, make myself a note to to cover that stuff. But essentially, what we have is. We see when the divorce was final, when the quadro, which is the thing for the the pension, was set up, and then the case is kind of dormant. And then we see that that Ron had hired an attorney to file some kind of uh, action in 2005, I believe, regarding the pension money. So we, we we so we still don't have the answer as far as where it was paid. And we see that going through the probate through. Um, you know, with, with Tiffany doing the doing the probate, like settling the estate of John and Vicky, 
you know, we have, you know, money that came from life insurance, money that came from insurance from the house. We have money that, um, um, I think that, that was pretty, pretty much it. it was insurance policies in the house and the money she got no way. And, and there was, I thought maybe we saw it cause it was like, here's money from that she got that came from a savings account with like $50,000. I'm like, Oh, well there it is. And then you back up a little bit, realize, Nope, that was from an insurance policy that paid out. Um, that was like basically held in escrow. It seemed like that was going to it. Uh, but the interesting thing was that, you know, we had heard the statements about how Ron was fighting this in court and it seemed like, and I don't know what that action was. Again, I'll give you the details of it when I have it in front of me again. Um, but it seemed like Ron did have some sort of court action that he had an attorney engaged and had some sort of uh, court action. And that could have just been to make sure they pay her out, or it could have been more like what Cindy Hayward had said about, um, that he was fighting it in court. I don't know, but it, I just found it interesting that like, Oh, we do that. You know, the, 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 the divorce case reemerges after all those years, you know, 10 years after the divorce with some sort of filing, uh, that seems to be related to the retirement money. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Um, uh, just to touch on Melissa, uh, who says any chance some or all of the detectives were either afraid of certain families or criminals or on their payroll to look the other way. This could be why they never did a proper investigation. We've, talked about this a little bit just you know whether or not it's political whether or not it's just a lack of experience in the law enforcement and sort of speculating on you know why this stuff happens not just in this case but in other cases i wouldn't want to speculate on that i mean because that's all it could be right yeah i've made my opinion very clear that i think this was a terrible investigation uh they did not make the efforts very simple basic efforts that should have been made for a proper investigation as far as the why I mean, look, there's a lot of politics that were going on around this case for all for all the years from the beginning to the end. Um, There's some conflicts of interest that were involved there, but I can't sit here and tell you that that was the reason why it was a bad investigation. I think law enforcement, there was a there was another another case and and some forest fires and and that, that the police had said that was their kind of given as their excuse as to that's why this investigation wasn't as good because their resources were tied up. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to speculate on the why because we just don't know. Right. Uh, Emily says, did we ever find out if either Robert or Christian's attorneys made a motion to sever the trials? I don't understand. I still don't understand why they wouldn't. Uh, so I was just this morning, I was speaking to Christy and to Kathleen who were actually contacted the attorneys because nobody could seem to remember um, if that happened, if they, if they tried. And, and even the attorneys on the case um, today said they don't remember that they did that. But so no one seemed, doesn't, if, if there was, so it sounds like if there was an attempt to sever the trials, it wasn't much of a fight, nothing that was, that was memorable. It's, I, th- I think Christy or somebody had said that they think part of the issue was that the judge had ruled early that Jeremy Witt's testimony could be used against Robert. And at that point, it kind of became like, well, what's the point in even separating them? You know, because so the idea, so like Jeremy Witt's testimony about hearing Christian confess to something saying, you know, something went wrong and we had to torch the place uh, was about Christian, not about Robert. The DNA on the scene was Christian's, not Robert's. So there, it would seem to make some sense that, well, Robert would probably want to be tried separate because none of that stuff could be used against him. 
sounds like the judge had ruled that that stuff could be used in Robert, you know, against Robert. So at that point, there's no reason to separate the trials because you you, you wouldn't have that advantage anyway. Um, hmm. Yeah, and it also would be kind of throwing Christian under the bus too. I can in the way that the families works have worked so hard together over the years, and Robert and Christian, I can't see them being like, oh well, it looks like Christian's got a, they've got some shit on Christian, so you go get tried by yourself, and I'll stay separate over here. Um, I can't see them doing that, but it sounds like no, nobody seems to remember for sure, but there certainly wasn't any big effort made to try and separate the trials. Chris says, did the defense consider having the convicted testify? I would think Christian especially could have helped himself if the implication is he helped his friend. I'm sure it was discussed. I just, Christy, I, I had asked Christy that this morning too, and she said she think there was there was a discussion but about it, but I, I'm sure, obviously we know they didn't testify. And again, I don't think it was any big discussion because that's just not done. Like, like I mean, most, I mean, and by most, I mean, almost all criminal trials like this, the, de- the defendants will not testify in their own defense. It's never a good idea. It's, it's very, very, very rarely, unless there is a, a, a really particular reason for the def- a defendant to get up and testify in their own defense, they won't do it because they can just. It just opens them up to too much cross-examination, and usually they can't make the problem. Because what what good will it do? So if you were to say, I'm on trial, and they're saying I did something that that I didn't do, and we put on evidence trying to show and make, make a defense, and then I get on the stand and say, I didn't do it because I was doing something else. Well, if we had the evidence to prove that I was doing something else, we would have presented it. So what good does me saying, I didn't do it, I was doing something else at the time, something that can't be proven, who's the one person that would absolutely lie about doing something else? It would be me, right? right. The defendant. And juries know that. So, there, so there's, there's not much point in putting them on because I'm going to get up and give you a reason why you shouldn't think that I did it. And then the prosecution is going to get up and hammer me about every single thing I've ever said in my entire life afterwards in front of the jury. So. um yeah, it, it it was discussed, I'm sure, but it was it was I don't I doubt it was ever really considered. And I've interviewed one of the attorneys and and I believe I asked that question and they just said no, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have put him up on the stand. Yeah, it's also just hard because, you know, we're social creatures and we it's really hard, I think, for a juror. I I mean, I've never had to serve on a jury like this, but it, you just you you're looking for signs and everyone has a different idea of what those signs mean and everyone has a different idea of what a guilty person acts like and what an innocent person acts like and what a person who loved someone acts like versus a person who doesn't seem upset enough that something happened. I mean, it just seems like it becomes so much less about the facts and more about the sort of personality assessment that um, that that just not that doesn't that's not fair. Yeah, it's not worth it. It's like taking a polygraph test. Why? Why would anyone ever? You know, they tell you, take this polygraph test, and if you pass it, that's how we can clear you. Except for that never happens. If they take a polygraph test and they pass the test, then they're like, well, it's not admissible, and they continue. Or they pull you into an interrogation room and lie to you and tell you you failed it when you passed it to try to get something out of you. And then the fact that you passed it can't be used to prove your innocence later. There's, you would never, there's no upside for it. And the same thing with, with testifying in your own defense. There's all those negatives you just mentioned, Janet. But and then on top of it, what's the upside? So I can tell you, look you in the eye, the jury, and tell you I'm innocent. You're not going to believe me. Of all people, like we hear that from like actual alibi witnesses. 
Right. He was at home with his wife all night. Well, of course, his wife would say that. That's his wife. Like, you know what I mean? People don't want to believe right. it. So there's just no upside to it. Except for then you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't, because then you hear right. from juries after the fact. If only they just would have. I felt that I should have been able to hear, hear from that person directly. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't, I assumed that that meant that they were guilty. Yeah. I hear all the time two things uh, when you when you when, when either like see jurors interviewed about cases and trials and stuff. Two things. One is. I felt like they should have taken the stand and defended themselves. And two, if not them, who? Uh, not realizing that it, like defendants almost never take the stand to defend themselves. And if not them, who? In a lot of cases, the defense is not allowed to present another option or another you know, alternate suspects. It's just one of the reasons I think our system is, is broken. Yeah. Uh, Lynn asks... Did we discover any Brady material in this case? Convictions seem to get overturned due to process error identification rather than evidence of actual innocence. Not Brady that uh, the, no Brady that we can prove the trick. So we haven't. We there's a lot of things that are suspected or that I suspect, like things I think happened, that there's evidence to indicate that they did happen, but they're not in the file, which could be Brady, but we haven't proven. The, you know, so, so like we'll see an interview from somebody in 2015 when the cold case unit is, is, is investigating and they'll mention like, yeah, when investigators talked to me back in, you know, the day after the murders, I was telling them such and such, but then you look and like, there's no record of them being interviewed the day after the murders, but they're saying they were, well, what did, were they interviewed and what did they say? Is there, there's a potential for Brady there, but we, but so we haven't been able to prove any of that more. So what we've been at, what as far as process errors is I think we've uncovered quite a bit of what could be ineffective assistance of counsel, which is this, you know, it's not the same thing, but it's another, you know, it's, it's a fair trial argument. It's a violation of due process because for example, the sector data that you have the defense stipulating that evidence that is exculpatory evidence or would have been exculpatory evidence stipulating that it didn't exist when it was in their file. So if that had not, if that had, if the sector data had truly not been put into discovery, it would have been Brady. The fact that it was in discovery, but it was stipulated that it wasn't there. It's, it's, it's the same item of evidence, but the argument changes from Brady violation to ineffective assistance of counsel because the defense attorneys, obviously should not have stipulated that this evidence didn't exist when it did exist because they you know they they evidently didn't go through the file fully and didn't realize it was there. Kathy says, "Do you know who from Becky's family was present on a regular basis during the trial and did anyone from Becky's family make a statement after the trial was over or since?" I haven't seen any statements from what I've been told from people that were there. Uh seems like Ron and I think Tiffany were there most of the time. And that's not to say there was no one like 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 uh, Robbie Hayward. I don't know if Robbie was there. I'm not saying he wasn't. I just haven't. I, I I've heard a lot of people talking about how Ron and Tiffany were there, um, like like every day of the trial. As far as anyone else, I don't know who else was or wasn't. Melissa said, "Did you ever hear from any of uh, their the the victims' families or their representatives?" No. Nobody. I mean, I've I've tried reaching out to all of them one in one way or another, and still haven't heard back from anybody. Totally understandable. Kate in the uh, in the in the YouTube chat. Also, I just want to point out real quick. Um, 
in reference to what I was just talking about, said there was um, weren't there voicemail transcripts that were going to be sent separately that weren't actually provided as well. Uh, that's a good point. That's another one of those that Kate that, that could be a Brady violation, and that's where we see the that the um, in the warrant for cell phone records they specifically requested cell, uh, um, voicemails. And then we don't see anywhere where Verizon said they couldn't or wouldn't send them, but we don't have them in the file. You know, so that that's that's another like we can't say that's a Brady violation because we don't know. But if that's another one of those things that if the defense were say to find those voicemail transcripts in the in the state's file and it was never put into discovery, then yes, that would be a a great example of a Brady violation. Great point, Kate. Thank you for reminding us about that. Chris had a question about why Corey or Jacob or Nick, any of the people who seem to have gotten their information about the wheelbarrow from uh, Javi, why were they not asked to testify by the defense team at the trial? I don't know. I mean, that's another another one that I think they should have. I, I don't know. A big thing to understand is that we are working this case with 100,000 people looking at one element for an entire week at a time of one case, picking apart every little thing. And so things like that seem very obvious to us, right? Like like we examined all those, you know, Bo and Corey and everybody's everybody's statements and Jacob's statements. And, and we have listeners that have put together, you know, Google Docs and timelines and how things line up and all that stuff. So to, to us, it seems very obvious, like, here, put all these people on the stand now and have them, you know, or, or share their interviews to to impeach Javier. I don't know that that was maybe as obvious to the defense, I, because as opposed to what was going on here is you have defense attorneys that are working this case amongst other cases in this massive case file. They're just not going to be going into as much detail. I'm not, not giving them a pass. Um, so the short answer to your question is, I don't know. I wish they would have. Um, but I think that could be part of it that they just didn't fully have a, a full picture grasp on how those things might have helped them. That maybe they they didn't focus on them too much. And there also could be a whole thing with the with the alternate suspects and what they couldn't couldn't bring up. You, you know, so maybe maybe they were just trying to avoid because you run a risk, right? So if, so say you put like Jacob on the stand, and and you want to. Maybe throughout the trial, you're trying to throw some little nuggets out that maybe even though you're not you're not doing alternate suspects, to maybe the jury think, well, there's some other drama going on in other places. But now you put him on the stand, and now he's subject to your direct examination and cross examination. But no one is able to even ask about or suggest anything that could make him look like a suspect. And then now the end result is you whitewash somebody who maybe you were trying mm. to make an implication about to the jury, hmm. but now you're whitewashing them in front of them like, oh, well, clearly this guy had nothing to do with it. Otherwise, surely that would have come up when he was being, when he was testifying. And that's just, that's my non-lawyer thinking of one of the reasons why maybe you wouldn't, but I don't, I don't know if that's accurate. I'm going to jump in hmm. with a listener question from the YouTube. So Mary asks, what's the best opportunity for a new trial? I don't know. Uh, it's a good question, Mary. Um, yeah, and and I th- I think we may hear from I, I just t- I talked to Robert's attorney briefly before this because you know we were we were going to interview Robert and then the t- all the attorneys kind of agreed let's just all not do media uh, and I was going to maybe interview one of Robert's attorneys to see if they could tell us where we're at and they said now nah, we want to wait until 
um, the filings come out. And a lot of it is, I think, that they don't want to tip their hat, you know, tip their hand to the prosecution. Like, these are the things we're going to be filing. Um, but I don't know. From my layman's opinion and what we know now, I would – I think that there's a strong argument for ineffective assistance counsel um, around the cell phone evidence. I don't think it's enough to, like, to reach, like, actual evidence uh, – excuse me, actual innocence. There's not an, there's not enough there to say we can 100% prove this. I think that the data is very clear in what it shows. We've certainly seen from other people that have tried to, that have made counter arguments that there's enough ambiguity there. I think that it's not an actual innocence claim, but certainly um, there's ineffective assistance counsel there that, that that these are things that should have that could have and should have created reasonable doubt. I think that that's a big thing. And the big thing for me along the actual innocence realm is um, DNA testing. Is you know, I, I, my my hope and prayer is that we do further, you know, hopefully MVAC DNA testing on Becky's shoe, her socks, her pant cuffs. I mean, really any part of her body that they can still do that on, uh, even the wheelbarrow handles, whatever. Um, see what kind of profiles we can get. Take the profiles we already have and compare them to several suspects, if not run them through CODIS or get pro- more profiles that we can run through CODIS as well. Um, and and I, th- to me, that seems like that could be the easiest thing ever. You know, this this whole complicated case. Imagine if they take the profiles they already have, and they run them through CODIS and immediately get a hit for a violent for two violent offenders that lived in that that area that have no no connection to the house. How quickly would this all be over? Yeah, that simple. Um, so that's my hope. My, my hope is that, that, that what's being worked on is DNA testing and DNA comparisons. Um, and then, of course, we have all the ineffective assistance of counsel and things like that going forward. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kristen had a question that um, now this is my own interpretation, but I could be wrong about this. I know this has happened in other situations. Um, I don't know what the answer is going to be here, although I imagine I know. Uh, But Kristen says, has anyone been uh, anyone that has been discussed in this season threatened to sue for defamation or anything like that? No, no. Um, Here's the thing. Throughout our our years of doing this podcast, there are always people um, that believe the People we're talking about are are guilty. Um, every season, usually there are a group that'll even start contact. There was one a few seasons ago that they were insisting that I was defaming this person, and they actually were contacting this person to tell them that they should that they should sue me. Um, and they didn't know because I didn't reveal it because it was it was it was personal stuff. But this person had, op- had openly discussed the thing that I was talking about um, mm. to understand that. For a defamation suit to be successful, 
what what you have to prove is that what the person said about you is untrue. And what people are typically mad about the, the who who think that I'm wrong about a lot of this stuff, the 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 thing that people are typically mad about are my opinions. And an opinion is not defamation. So for example, if I say I believe they did a shitty investigation. The defense is truth for a defamation suit, which means I would have to prove that I truly do think that it was a shitty investigation. So I am no, no, nobody has ever threatened to sue me. I have attorneys that I consult with about the the thing. And and I'm, I'm very careful not to say anything false about, about people. And that is the protection for defamation. There are other, there are other cases where, you know, there was, um, this was discussed openly, but like, uh, our friend Maggie Freely, uh, Freeling's podcast was was sued for murder and alliance for defamation, but it was because they stated something, allegedly stated something as a fact that the the person doing the plaintiff in that said is not true. Like they, I think I think it was something. What they they kept saying that he took a the he, sheriff took supposedly took a date to the oh, crime yes. scene. Yeah, they kept right. saying that, and the sheriff was saying, I did not take a date to the crime scene. It was a ride-along or whatever. I have no idea how that's litigated or how that's worked out, but like mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an example of someone saying, here is a thing that is a fact, and then someone saying, no, that's not a fact. You're defaming me, saying that this happened or didn't. But um, me saying my opinion about something is not op- – anyone saying what their opinion about something is is not, is not grounds for a defamation suit. But that is an uncomfortable part about this process. It's not the it's certainly my least favorite is is digging into other people's lives and talking about possibilities that might open an opportunity for someone who's wrongfully convicted to be freed. Mm-hmm. But knowing that, you know, and, and I think the line is different for different people in terms of what they're comfortable with. Um, it's not I, I would it would be horrible to be in a situation where you happened to be a part of a case that you had nothing to do with something, but your behavior had been investigated by the police, it had been discussed, it needed to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of just having to live with 100,000 people, um, hearing your name, knowing who you are at all, and knowing any of your personal past um, is horrible. I hope it never happens to anyone. I, I don't wish that on anyone. It's a very hard part of this process for me, but I also really want people who murdered someone to be held accountable and i really want people who shouldn't be in prison to be out yeah but again i understand for people who are like i can't i can't do this kind of work or i can't listen to this kind of podcast because that's too uncomfortable for me i totally respect that it's a lot of i've mentioned a few times season 13 is coming this week in two days um and the season 13 is going to be something different and and some of the reason for that is yeah like sometimes just we need a break because it, it is the amount of stress that goes into this, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of it that's even behind the scenes. And, and as you just kind of articulated, Janet, that's one of the things is constantly there's a not someone I'm not not worrying about a lawsuit, but the constant moral dilemma of what should I share that's important to the case? How will it affect people? Well, this may affect someone negatively, but it's also a very important part of the case. It's it's it's. It, it can be it can be pretty exhausting at times. Christina says this question is more for Zach. I'm hung up on the birdshot. Who shows up to a home invasion with an accomplice with a shotgun full of birdshot? These guns must have been stolen or borrowed 
If you have the choice for the res- or the resources, would you show up to a home invasion with a shotgun full of birdshot? The investigators check recent gun thefts in the area. Zach, you want to weigh in on this? Honestly, so first of all, I think it's a weapon of convenience. I, I think that whoever had it, had it loaded and ready to go before this. Um, the assumption about them being must have been stolen or borrowed, sorry to butt in, to me seems like I don't know why they must have been stolen or borrowed. I don't know why they couldn't have belonged to so someone. I but think anyway, the presumption ahead. is that birdshot isn't a good round to use. But in home defense, a shotgun loaded with birdshot is considered the best round for home defense. So anybody in their home usually have that would use a firearm for home defense. It is it is said to be that birdshot, because it doesn't overpenetrate, is the best round for home defense. You're, it's not going to not going to leave the home, which is a very important thing in home defense. What a lot of people don't know is once that once that bullet discharges or the pellets discharge from a shotgun, you are responsible for that wherever it goes. So even though you may have shot an intruder, if it exits the intruder, exits the house and hits the neighbor, you are now liable for that and can be charged for that. So a lot of times people use birdshot for home defense in these cases. And I, and I think it's a weapon of opportunity at this point. And honestly, I don't even know that, the wep- that they went up there to murder. I think the weapons were probably in intimidation, like they were hoping to get something and then it, it turned on it and then they had to use what they had. Yeah, I I wonder about. It's interesting that you say I didn't realize that that was the most common one to use for it is. home defense. Yeah, as far as it being, I personally think that people that whoever went there went there with murder in mind, just based on the not necessarily the weapons, but the the what we see uh, the behaviors that we see on the crime scene. To me, looks like it was you know, and in, they very much intended to go up and kill people. But the as far as the convenience of the weapon or the the shot choice, I've always kind of thought, and it makes more sense actually now that you point out that that's like very for 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 home defense that people might have their gun loaded with birdshot that they would just grab if they either in your scenario or mine if they're, if they're going up there with murder in mind that they mm-hmm. would grab the weapons that they have like I have a shotgun loaded with these rounds so that's what I'm going to take not be thinking about you know oh maybe I should take a. a a heavier shot like, mm-hmm. like, a, like a buck shot or something the other thing is the accuracy some you know somebody's not a good shot whatever it may be but so what they have is is that gun sits there it's it's for target practice it's for birds they shoot squirrels with it you're not going to try to shoot an animal yeah with a slug or buck shot unless you're shooting a big game like a deer like elk something like that yeah. i mean you're just not going to do it so more than more than likely you have bird shot in that gun so i i don't think the bird shot is any indication that they didn't know what they were doing or anything like that. I just think it was out of sheer convenience. I think we, we know the answer to this, but Christina had ended her question with, did investigators check recent gun thefts in the area? Uh, no, I don't think, I mean, not that I've seen in the case file. It sure didn't seem like it because it didn't seem like that was in their vision. They, they thought that the perpetrators brought the guns, that they owned them, that they were theirs. Yeah. So I don't think they ever even thought they were stolen. Yeah. So why check on it? Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, again, they didn't even talk to the neighbors other than who the people that were on the scene. And then some of, and even some of those, it took 10 years before they talked to them. Yeah. And I just don't see anything in the file that indicates that they pulled anything like that. Well, why don't we get to Wendell's post from Facebook? Wendell says, despite the ending, this was worth doing. And I think every season teaches us things that will be helpful in future seasons as far as red flags and investigative procedures go. 
I'd love to hear Bob, Zach, and Janet give kind of a post-mortem analysis on what we've learned. I'll probably leave that to Bob. One through line I can I think we can see in all of Truth and Justice seasons is that crimes which weren't necessarily premeditated or that are the result of dynamic situation are much harder to solve through normal operating procedures and are much more in danger of going wrong. It seems like every season we have a situation that started as one thing and escalated into another, a victim that was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and a lot of moving parts. For me, as far as something that I learned is uh, another thing to be looking for when selecting a case is if the initial investigation didn't take proper investigative steps, like basic 101 police work, you you know, so we know, and a lot of us things that we learned, like, you know, especially from like Jim Clemente, who's taught us a ton about how investigation should work. When we see a case that shifts, either shifts to, or even begins as a suspect based investigation, like in this case, you know, my opinion is that they, you know, they honed in on Javier right away and thought Javier was the was the one they were after. And then and then eventually to Robert and Christian that those are those are huge red flags. And there are times when and they're, they're, there's a good chance that they didn't get that right. You know, so kind of what we do and what we did in this case is start looking. At, OK, let's go back to the beginning and let's look at let's investigate it the way that it should be investigated. Which is okay. First things first. Victimology. What do we know about victimology? Well, they didn't do a great job there. Uh, well, okay. So let's talk about you know this. This was an isolated area. Let's start looking at you know first we t- we we start those concentric circles that begin with the people closest to the victims and work our way out. But then also geographically, we should start the same thing. The people you know the the look for evidence and information from the people who lived physically closest and work their way out. Um, and those are things that we didn't really learn or didn't fully understand, or at least I didn't until we got much later in the season as we start working through everything the police did. And then all of a sudden we realize they never did the very bait. They didn't canvas the neighborhood. They didn't look for cameras. They didn't ask anybody if they saw a car. We talk a lot about, did anybody see a car leaving? We didn't, they didn't even ask anybody if they saw a car coming. Nobody in the neighborhood was asked, did you see any cars driving towards Alpine Drive that night? So I think as a, it, it's, it's probably not a real satisfactory answer for, for Wendell as far as what we learned. But that's a big thing for me. You know, I have all these red flags that I look for when I'm screening cases. And I think that's one to add to it is like, did they not do the very basic investigation 101 steps from the beginning? And if they didn't, then there's a, probably a good chance that they got it wrong. Hmm. You know, I think Wendell kind of pointed out what I'm about to say, but you know, there's always, there always seems to be a very inconvenient coincidence in a lot of these cases, whether it's this case with their, their cell phones being out of service during the time or where, whether it's Ed Eight's case or Ryan Ferguson's case, Kenny Snow's case. There's so many cases that always have these just inconvenient coincidences that happen for these mm-hmm. people. And I mean, it's a sad thing to see, but you see it so often in, in all these wrongful conviction cases. It just makes you wonder when those moments could have happened in your own life, too. It, it does. It yeah. really does. Well, and Wendell was the one that pointed out early in the season, and it was really eye-opening when somebody, I think it was, it was like on the Facebook page, where somebody had pointed out, what are the odds that it just happened to be that they planned a hike to go on a hike that day, and their phones go out of service, and they weren't involved? Like, what are the odds of that happening? And Wendell pointed out quite astutely that every single case of wrongful conviction starts out 
with a weird coincidence. And and I've said that many times, but that's something that kind of came from that that thought process kind of came from Wendell. And he's he's right when you look back in it. Yeah, that's the, that's why people who are wrongfully convicted became suspects. Very rarely, extremely rarely, would it be that they you know the police just pull a name out of a hat and go after somebody. I mean, the, the one time we did see that as a case was Jamie Snow, our season seven case. It was literally just like, well, we're sick of this guy, so let's grab him. But in most cases, there are there there's some weird coincidence that in any other day wouldn't have meant shit. Would it, like in this case, let's say even for those of you that disagree, let's say for a minute that I'm right that Robert and Christian didn't really intend on going on that hike. And they were just blowing Becky off and they shut their phones off because they were because she was blowing their phones up and they didn't want to deal with it. On any other day, that's just normal teenage behavior. No one would have thought anything of it. The fact that then the whole family up there ends up getting murdered that day, now all of a sudden it's like it it fits. It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence worth looking into them as suspects. Mm-hmm. It goes off the rails when the blinders go on and police insist they must be the suspects the only thing i'll add to that is that i feel like there are um (laughs) there are a lot more arbitrary moments with people of color in lower income communities where it really is like there's literally nothing except for like you heard this name once and it was a black person so you sent them to prison i feel like yeah for sure we've also heard many many stories of like there doesn't even have to be a coincidence it could just be that yeah you know yeah that's a good point for sure that's the case Kathy has some general questions. Kathy says, uh, what can we do to stop the legal system from allowing jailhouse informant testimony? It seems that many cases of wrongfully convicted prisoners included testimony from informants. So that's one. And then um, we can move on to the next one after we talk about that. Yeah, I I don't know what can be done to change it. We need legislation passed. Some states have passed laws about um, jailhouse informants. I'm drawing a blank, but but, but uh, which states they are. But I feel like there are some states that have rules that say in order to use the testimony of a jailhouse informant, there has to be some kind of evidence to corroborate it. Like you can't just put up somebody said something because it also becomes a very difficult thing when it when we get to um, post conviction like appeals, you know, like Carrie Max Cook. Literally, the only reason Carrie Max Cook still has a conviction on his record at all. Um, it well, as well, right now the, the conviction has been, but he has, but it hasn't been overturned on actual innocence is because a sheriff said, testified that Carrie confessed to him in an elevator on, in the middle of his trial. And that sheriff is dead. And now it's impossible to disprove that happened. And therefore that is an element of the state's case that, 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 that remains. And so his conviction cannot be vacated based on actual innocence. Like it's that shouldn't be the case. There should have had to have been some. And look at Jesse. Jesse Eldridge is still sitting in prison when the one wasn't a jailhouse informant. But, you know, his brother's testimony, his brother has recanted. He's taken a polygraph with the DA to prove that he's telling the truth now. Uh, And it's been years. And he's still sitting in prison. You know, these years later, you know, it hasn't been denied anything, but it's a long process. But things have to get state laws have to get changed, I think, on a state level, unless it's something that can be passed down from the federal government. But I think at the very least, there should be a requirement to have some sort of corroborating evidence to what jailhouse informants say. That's and that actually is one of the red flags. If you go on our website, when you submit a case to us, you know, in in the questionnaire you fill out, one of the things I ask in there is. Was there a jailhouse informant involved in the case? Because 
so many times. That's it, it's a tactic. It's a sign of weakness from the prosecution, the way I see it. And that's why I've always looked looked at it that way, which is if you have a strong case, you don't go into the jail and start trying to get somebody to flip on somebody else. If you have actual evidence, you don't need Kenny Snow to come in and make up some story. You don't need that. Uh, if if you have if you have an, an actual case, so it's it's one of the red flags that I look for. Kathy also says, uh, "What do you think are the two or three most significant factors within our legal system that contribute to how long it takes to make progress in reexamining cases of or potentially? I'm sorry, uh, making progress in reexamining cases of potentially wrongfully convicted prisoners." The the two or three most significant significant factors that make it take so long. I mean, a lot of it's just overloading of the courts to begin with, you know, the, the, there's just so many hours in a day, so many days, the judges, and there's only so many judges and so many courtrooms. I don't know how to make that process faster, you know, because there are some people that will say, well, the way to make it faster is to limit the reasons people can appeal. Right. So, so, you know, the idea is uh, it, that's when you hear people like trying to defend, like in the West Memphis three case, we have to, we have to defend the integrity of the conviction. We don't want to test the evidence because that's just you know, you know they were convicted it's over with and and we don't want frivolous appeals going on and the argument that that some will make with that is yeah because th- those people are taking up time of the judge when they could be working on other cases but then the result of it is like in Damian Jason and Jesse's case like they are actually innocent and they need this and they need that testing done they do have to challenge the integrity of the conviction because it was a conviction without integrity so I don't know how to speed it up. It's short of more courtrooms and more judges. Or here's an idea. Let's get it right the first time. I, th- I think that I think what we do is is try to push to not allow these dishonest prosecutions to happen to begin with. Well, and I think you know um, counties or or districts or cities that are that are doing in, uh, conviction integrity units whose you know, sole job is on that side of things, not just on the yeah. side of the defense making an appeal or an investigator like you coming in and trying to sift through all of that uh, to have those places where, you know, you actually are holding yourself accountable as well, that somebody else doesn't have to hold you accountable, that you yourself as a team are saying, we are committed to the integrity of this system. And we understand that we don't always get it right. And it's really important, especially if you have any kind of history of, of finding people to have been wrongfully convicted in your area, that you make that commitment to show up for it as well. Whereas from the perspective of somebody who is, has been part of that machine, like what's the incentive in, re- in releasing documents quickly? What's the, res- what's the appeal of giving over to someone's FOIA when it's going to make you look bad. Right. And that is the, the state of mind that I think the machine gets clogged up with is just people being like, but, but this could cost me my job. Mm-hmm. What about my integrity? If people find out I lied, I won't have integrity anymore. Yeah. It's like, you cut that ship has sailed. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and give us the, the documents. And again, that's why it goes back to the be like doing it right the first time and to, yeah. avo- to avoid those issues. Uh, Brittany just wanted to shout out Brittany, um, in terms of lingering questions, uh, didn't really talk about this in the lingering questions episode. So I just wanted to shout her out for just still being bothered by this idea of Vicky saying she needed to get out of town. And that is something that I think is, is, you know, something that troubles a lot of us. What do we do about that? I don't know, but that's back to that basic victimology stuff to me. Like what was changing? What was going on? Like 
you had weirdly Vicky, who everybody says is a homebody on the very weekend she was murdered, making by the way Tiffany puts it almost desperately trying to get away that weekend and to not be there. Like that's that should have been a huge clue. And maybe it leads nowhere. Who knows? But that should have been a huge clue that that should have the investigator should have been honing in on based on the victimology rather than based on the suspect they had already pre-selected. I just want to shout out Capri in the uh, YouTube chat who says they need to stop looking at conviction rates as a mm-hmm. good thing. Conviction does not equal justice. I thought that was really well said as well. Thanks yeah, I Capri agree. for that. Um, and then, you know, Kristen and Tracy and Rachel and lots of other people. We've seen it in the YouTube chat as well. People asking how they can help. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, just people wanting to stay connected uh, going forward, even if we're not talking about it on a weekly basis. How do the Truth and Justice Army members help to continue this work and to make sure that the families don't feel alone? I know that there are a lot of people that have already made connections, some of our listeners with with a lot of the family members too. And and also let's not let's let's not forget the Christian side too. You know, they've because of their their attorney's feeling on working with media, we haven't heard as much from them. Like you heard from Jana on the podcast as Christian's mom. Um, but I, I definitely don't want those to get, the, you know, the Christian's family to get brushed under the rug because we've heard more from the papers. That's just strictly due to, you know, how different lawyers feel feel about things. But, um, yeah, for those of you that have made connections, I mean, the, some of these people are in our Facebook group. If you can talk to them there. And, um, and again, I want to put something together so we can, you know, even contribute to them financially to help them with everything, that, you know, the struggles that they're still going through to try to. At the, while at the same time trying to fight to get Robert and Christian home, they're also fighting to try to to give them some normalcy in their lives while they're, you know, by making sure that they have regular visits and they're seeing their families. And, you know, when, like, and again, we heard about, you know, Robert's family, mostly Christy did mention Christian and seeing Christian and things like that, too. And is, is but, you know, Christian has has a wife and a daughter that that are also you know traveling to go see him all, you know regularly um so would just stay posted on our social media or, or keep your eyes out on our social media where we can present some of those opportunities and we can even ask the family you know what things that we could do to to make sure that they know that we're still here for them and 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 I think they have their own Facebook page too for Robert and Christian um, that if they share it in the chat here, I'll, I'll put it in the, in the YouTube chat, but and we'll put it in the episode description to just continue to stay involved. Well, that's all I have. I'm sure there are lots of people who are very curious about where we're going next. Um, how, how would you like to round out this episode, Bob and Zach? First of all, I want to just thank everybody for, this has been a long journey. Um, I feel pretty good about the fact that I warned you all a year and a half ago that this is going to be over a year long season and we did not disappoint there, but it's been, it's been a long, difficult journey for everybody, not just for us, but for you, the listeners and so many of you that have stuck around and stuck through last summer here and, you know, just, just weeks and weeks of just interview after interview after interview and just spending so much time on all the details of this case. So just first of all, I just want to very, and we've gone through, through this season. We we lost Mike. Kelly came in. Janet joined the show. We've went through all the the struggles with our ad agents and all that stuff that we've dealt with. We've got this huge outpouring of support through our Patreon, which has really helped keep us afloat, uh, and just all the people that have stuck around through all this. So, first of all, I want to thank all of you guys for all of that. Um, and with that said, we are now ready to move on 
to our next our next mission and and Zach has, has has made it very clear that I'm not to spoil it for everyone. Listen, if I get one veto on something, it's you spoiling this. Yeah, I'm not going to. Um so I will tell you this. In 2 days on Sunday, we are launching season 13. Season 13 will be classic truth and justice in the fact that it is crowdsourcing at its finest. It is going to be real-time investigative work, and it is going to be you all, the listeners, actively, week after week, making a difference in people's lives. It will also be very different than any other season of Truth and Justice that we have ever done. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited for what we're going to be able to accomplish, and I can't wait to tell you about it. And the fact that I'm not telling you about it right now is 100% Zach's fault because uh, he will not let me. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to take the blame. Let the cat out of the bag. So tune in on Sunday. It'll be the, the introduction to season 13. Uh, we're going to start a whole new journey and, and hopefully you're all, you're all ready to go because I've got lots of work for all of you guys to do. And with that being said, we love you guys. Thank you so much for all of your, your continued support and. We'll see you on the other side on Sunday when we start season 13. Bye, guys. Thanks, everybody. NBI Studios production and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com Our follow-up logo was created by me and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing and maintaining our website TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode And a big thank you to our transcription team Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be fine in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. 
Janet can be found at Janet Barney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. That's too awkward to do live. I don't know. <laughs> for, those of, for those of you in the YouTube chat, because I'm editing myself, I thought it would be much yeah. easier if I just drop the uh-huh. music in in real time. Uh, I but, nodded off. Yeah, that was uh, super, so. that was strange. <laughs> that was something. Oh, that was good.